Welcome to The Lens with me, Sarah Travers. The Lens is a business in the community podcast in partnership with One Young World. I'm delighted that our guests today are John Lewis, Chief Executive of Capita. Now, Capita is the largest business process outsourcing and professional services company in the UK with public and private sector clients. Capita has its main operations in the UK, but also operates in Europe, Africa and Asia. Also joining us today is One Young World Ambassador, Cam Paul Christian, who is an investment banker with NatWest Markets, a well-known bank to many of our listeners. He's also an advocate for social mobility, financial inclusion and disability rights. So in this episode, we'll be discussing the role employers can play in future-proofing opportunities for all young people and the importance of this in a time of unprecedented change and economic uncertainty. We'll also be exploring how young people can overcome disadvantage in terms of education and employment. And we'll look at how businesses can get involved in inspiring young people while they are still in education. John, Cam, welcome to The Lens. So Cam, I'm going to uh, start with you first of all. Please, if you could, just share with The Lens listeners a little bit about your incredible story. Um, How you get into banking, who you are and how you've achieved what you've achieved. There's a big first question. Thank you, Sarah. I'm very happy to be here. I, As you said, I'm, I'm an investment banker with the NatWest Group within the NatWest Markets Division. I didn't start anywhere near banking, and I didn't know I'd ever end up in banking when I first started out, to tell the truth. Um, I grew up in inner city London. I went to a traditional state school in East London. I had some really great teachers that were really inspiring for me personally and helped me to think about what, what I may want to do in the future. I managed to get through that school with, with some support from my teachers, and I ended up getting straight A's and became head boy of the school and left in year 11. Didn't really know where to go, what to do. I just knew that I was really keen on education. So I applied to a local grammar school in my area and ended up fortunately being able to get into that school. It was very eye-opening. I think um, a lot of the people I encountered when I got there were from much wealthier backgrounds than I was from and had a lot more access to support education outside of uh, what was made available. I struggled a bit to kind of find my feet. I encountered some personal challenges as well as some academic challenges whilst I was at that school. And I really threw myself into it as much as I could, but I struggled. And after my first year, I effectively failed um, all of my AS levels. And I grew up in uh, a council estate area. There was a lot of gang crime in that area. And during the course of my studies and, and actually my exams, one day I came home and, and someone had shot at my mom's car outside our house. Gosh. And that meant that I had to end up being relocated midway through the year of my, my studies. Um, I ended up moving and um, stayed with my dad for some time. Um, and then <laughs> following a series of another unfortunate events, um, our, our house was burned down. <laughs> oh and then I had to move again. So as you can imagine, my ability to, to, to kind of study and, and stay focused was heavily impacted. Um, what I didn't have at that time was access, I guess, to the language and even the confidence. And sometimes, I guess, there was even elements of shame and not being able to communicate what was going on at home to the school in an appropriate way, etc. So actually, the school didn't realize what was happening with me at first. And all they realized that on my paperwork, my postcode had changed. <laughs> um, and I was no longer in the catchment area for the school. And they actually tried to evict me from the school. <laughs> 
and that added pressure to to what was going on already. Um, I had to get my parents involved to come to the school and explain the situation, which was a bit embarrassing. You know, no one wants to come to to, to a new school trying to um, put your best foot forward and have to explain some of the difficulties in in background. If I knew the things I knew now, and I, w- I was able to appreciate actually the strength and the resilience that I showed in being able to get through those things, I would have understood the value more. I managed to navigate that, reset all of my exams um, and finished with the A-stars I needed at A-level and ended up getting an offer to study history at Oxford, um, which I went on to study. I really enjoyed the three years of that course, engaged through a kind of social mobility related program to get a view of different industries that were out there. Through that, I ended up applying to do an internship at the Rothschild Investment Bank. They were really impressed with me and they offered me a full-time role. And I just joined banking. I, I now have a five-year-old daughter. She was born the day that I started on my desk in banking. So I was juggling that kind of investment banking, high, high demand workload, whilst also trying to be a new father and, and everything else. It was a bit of an intense roller coaster. There were a lot of lessons that I got out of that. A deeper understanding of myself and what skills I value, but also a deeper empathy for situations people can find themselves in. And I try to carry that through in all the work that I do today and all the recruitment and things that I do. My own journey hasn't been the straightest line, <laughs> But through, through a lot of support um, and, and care from people different arenas, I was able to get to a place where I feel happy. So, well, yeah. I mean, listening to your story, it is incredible. The odds were totally stacked against you, as is probably the case for so many young people. Um, what strikes me is your resilience, yes, but the fact that you had that vision, you must have believed that deep down inside of you, there were greater things ahead. Where did that come from? I was fortunate to have definitely a very, very supportive family. Um, and my mom was always very heavy on education and making sure that whatever we did, we made sure we put learning as one of the primary focuses. I would say that there are so many people at different places in, at times in my life. And I think... The one that I remember most is that when I was, I think, in year nine, so I was about 13, 14, we had one of these um, external people come in. The person was a barrister um, and did a mock trial with us and let us play it out and see what we might want. To. I served as the prosecuting barrister and, and I won the case and, and, and the gentleman said to me afterwards, oh, you're fantastic. You'd be a brilliant barrister. You just need to go to Oxford. Um, which it gave me something to aim for and to think about. And I didn't know anything about Oxford at the time. I didn't know entry criteria. I didn't know what it meant as a university. It was just someone that I respected that was in a a place of success that said something to me that showed they believed in some sort of talent they saw in me and it made me want to strive for it. And that was something I set my goal on. And when you came home and you told, say, your mum about this, I'm going to Oxford, mum, what did she say? Yeah, my mom's my mom's always well, was so supportive. She you know, she just said, I'm, "I'm sure you will." And what can I do to help you get there? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm not sure she really knew the full journey. And definitely because I was the first in my family generation to go to university, so there were definitely times along the way where whether it was A levels or even university applications, they didn't know exactly what to do and how to support me. <laughs> but they they, they were there. Tried. They were cheerleading <laughs> from the yeah. side. And yeah. you know, if you're going to pick a university for the first in the family to go to, why not? make it Oxford. Um, Incredible story. Park those thoughts. I will be coming back to them. But uh, listening on is John Lewis, of course, chief executive of Capita. Listening, I suppose, with um, incredulity, really, at what Cam has, has overcome in his life and what he has achieved. But school wasn't a great place for you either, was it, John? No, it wasn't. I was born in London which may surprise you given how committed to my Welshness I am. (laughs) But I was uh, born to a single mum 
um, who put me up for adoption at a very young age. And I was lucky enough to be adopted by a, a loving family who brought me up in a small mining town in South Wales and instilled in me a set of values, ethical behaviours, belief in meritocracy, equality that, that I think has stood me well. Uh, through my career, even in spite of the rocky start to my academic uh, uh, credentials. I, I was not a good student. Um, I, I flunked my A-levels. I got, I think, a C and a D and an F. And in those days, you could scrape into tertiary education. And I scraped into somewhere called Kingston Polytechnic, as it was known as the time. Uh, but something happened. I don't know whether it was the change of environment. Uh, I finally got to mature a little bit. Um, but a switch was flicked in me. Uh, and I, I think it's, it was something to do with the competitive environment in which I then found myself. And I worked very hard for the next six years on my uh, academic qualifications. And six years later, I left then Reading University with a, with a doctorate, a PhD in, in geology. But I really became quite ambitious and I had always been quite entrepreneurial, I guess. I wasn't averse to taking risks. I liked change. I liked challenge. And I was consulting through my PhD for a number of energy companies at the time. I had an opportunity to become a research fellow at Imperial College. I did that for about six years. I then became a lecturer at Edinburgh, uh, running a small consulting business at the time. I joined a software technology company in Austin, Texas, and spent the next 20 years of my career, actually, in the States, working for a, a series of companies. But I think the common thread through all of that was a willingness to take risk, career risk, a degree of self-belief in, in the form of what I call modest confidence. And I think modest confidence is a really important attribute as, mm. as one progresses one's career. And then had some level of career success, which ultimately brought me back to the UK about five or six years ago to run a, a FTSE engineering and construction company, which we turned around and sold. Uh, and then ultimately, uh, I became CEO of Capita four years ago. I think one of the other learnings that I think has been so important to my career has been, you know, to develop some, some thick skin, to become uh, resilient, to be able to face adversity. And, and, and I don't necessarily mean adversity in the way that perhaps Calm did at, 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 in the early stages of his career, but adversity in terms of professional challenge and how you deal with professional challenge uh, through your career. You've both spoken about self-belief and you've both spoken about resilience. But, John, if I could stay with you just for now, obviously COVID-19 has had a huge impact on the world, on us all. But arguably, those disproportionately affected in the workplace are young people, both those in the early stages of their careers and those still in education preparing to enter the world of work, but also even more so and more badly affected have been those young people from disadvantaged areas. Maybe they didn't have access to um, enough pieces of technology to allow them to continue with education. So, you know, there's been a massive gap for some. What are you doing and what is Capita doing to future-proof opportunities for young people, particularly in the wake of the pandemic? Well, I guess my first comment would be, there isn't one thing that you do to create the greatest set of opportunities for young people as a result of COVID. It's a myriad smaller 
activities. And it ranges from everything from making our laptops available to people in schools to ensure they had access to participate in remote education capability, all the way through to the UK Kickstart program, creating more opportunity for people who perhaps might not ordinarily be able to participate uh, in the activities that we perform because of where they are geographically. But, you know, one of the benefits of COVID has been that working from home, virtual first, as we call it, enables us now to enable people from anywhere in the UK to participate in roles within our larger organisation. And, and I'm a great believer in ensuring that technology of itself becomes a great leveller up Mm. across the UK. We are employing many more people now from socio-economically challenged areas outside of the Southeast, being able to work from home, being able to work remotely, or if they wish to work in an office environment, is facilitating that as we invest in the provinces. But also, we have been able to develop technology to arm people with the skills and capabilities necessary to participate in the workforce. So apprenticeships are important. It's not one solution. I think it's many things we have to be doing. We've been hearing that the government have been pledging to rebalance and levelling up, you know, the economy between London and the rest of the UK. You're actually acting that out now. How do you actually know when you've achieved uh, what you've set out to do and that it's not just paying lip service to an idea? Well, I, th- I think fundamentally it has to be reflected in, in, in metrics and statistics that speak to what I, early on in my life, uh, benefited from, which is social mobility. Um, it's one of the reasons why I was so passionate about getting involved in BITC because of their objectives in that arena. So, you know, what have we done to create opportunity for people who might not otherwise have such opportunity? What have we done at different levels in our organization to drive diversity and inclusion? And what have we done as a result of everything I've talked about to impact things like our emissions footprint? And you know, one of the benefits of operating the virtual first uh, uh, business model is that our emissions are dramatically down. They're down 42%. Um, through COVID. And that's, we don't want to give all of that up as some people come back into the workplace and we revert to perhaps the more conventional ways of, of operating. But it's about metrics. You have to, if you don't measure it, you're not going to achieve it. And I think it's about being creative and thoughtful in terms of the metrics uh, that demonstrate you are making a difference. Well, Cam, tell us a little bit about how you're ensuring young people are inspired, equipped, how they're being reached to make sure that we're reaching them to give them those opportunities, especially in this time of economic uncertainty and change. Of all the projects and things I work on, I always work with a very supportive group of people. I think even within NatWest context, for example, we have something called the Money Sense, which is a program where any, any employee throughout the whole group can volunteer. We go into local schools, even even as early as primary schools, and we deliver early stage workshops on like financial literacy, banking, savings. What what does it mean? How, what, how does banking work? And but I think what's really what's really valuable about that is the proximity it provides and the very early socialization of of certain ideas, especially among communities and, and populations that aren't often reached in that space. And I think just creating those community ties between our organization, our employees and, and those local schools and people and parents 
provides people the opportunity to just ask questions, find out about jobs, industries and things that are available that they didn't know about. I didn't really know anything about investment banking until I was at university, to be honest, let, let alone at primary school. I think it's fantastic that you're going out there as a role model and you're having the conversations. John, do you ever get to do that yourself as the chief executive or do you have people going out into the communities for you too? If I'm honest, I, I tend to do less of that with that generation. But like Calm, um, I regard, frankly, one of the most satisfying aspects of my role as being, you know, the activities you undertake to enthuse and excite others about the career potential that exists in the organization that I lead. Um, It's deeply, deeply satisfying to open up opportunities for people, especially where you have that gut instinct that this is someone who actually probably has tremendous potential um, has the intellect, has the drive, has the capability, but perhaps doesn't understand what opportunity might be out there, perhaps doesn't have quite the requisite level of self-belief to pursue those opportunities. And I think there's something, and I can't talk, I don't know whether empowering is the right word, but almost giving people the right to have a level of ambition they perhaps didn't previously have. And what's your best bit of advice then around uh, self-belief? I think given that you are encouraging people from a position of experience, knowledge, insight, I think of itself is encouraging to them. When I was a comprehensive school kid, or even my first years of work, I never thought that someday I'd be running a FTSE 250 business. It's about having belief in yourself to do the next thing and have the desire and ambition to take on that risk. Uh, Because often with career progression, there is risk. It's back to the self-doubt issue. Uh, But recognizing that invariably there are people that help you. There are people there who want to see you succeed. Um, And over time, you do develop a greater level of, I keep coming back to it, modest confidence. You do start to believe in yourself And and once you bag a few of these career advancements, then you do start to believe, I think, as an individual that, well, you know, why don't I I take a chance and take that next career opportunity on and and, and see where it leads me? So you've used that word and, and that phrase a couple of times now, modest confidence. Is that what you really look for in an employee? I mean, or are you super impressed when you meet somebody with supreme confidence? What makes you go they're the right person to work in my organization. Well, actually, supreme confidence bordering on arrogance Mm. is a massive no-no for me. You have to have a level of confidence that gives you self-belief and your ability to deal with the challenges that your role in your career throws at you, but not be so confident that you frustrate others in in what it is you're undertaking. And I think, you know... um, Trust me, I was very, very confident. I was unbearable, quite <laughs> frankly, at that point in time, um, because I went from one extreme to the other. Yeah. Um, but I very quickly learned in my mid-late 20s, lots of coaching from people who believed in me, I hasten to add, that actually that level of confidence was doing me a great disservice. And actually, I needed to be more balanced in terms of um, 
you know, recognizing what strengths and weaknesses I had and how that would play into how I should think about progressing my career. So you were taught maybe to listen more to others and listen respectfully and uh, not just to say your piece afterwards. Um, what did that teach you? How do you think you grew as an individual once you actually took that on board? Because it's quite a big thing to take that on board because you could have seen that as, as criticism. Well, I never feel I've had to deal with adversity But there have been many, many occasions in my career where I've had to deal with deep, deep disappointment. But it did a lot of good. You act upon it and and it shapes the way you then behave going forward. So coping with disappointment was something that you had to learn then in order for you to progress and become a more compassionate and and, and better leader. Can you pinpoint a, a big disappointment that you actually were able to apply the learning and the new skills to overcome such a challenge? I think the biggest disappointment to me in my career was when I was part of a succession plan to become CEO of a very large organization. And I didn't get it. And I had a decision to make. You know, do I leave the business at that point in time and go off and be a CEO somewhere else? Or do I accept the decision that the board of the company made and stay with that company, work for the individual who ultimately was made the CEO, Um, because I I had such commitments and networks um, within the broader organization. There's a desire on part of many of my colleagues to stick around in that organization. And ultimately, that's what I did for a good few years. And that's not easy. I stayed there for about two years after that decision. And um, uh, I, I think it was arguably the most humbling experience of my career. Cam, just listening to that... um you know, very honest, very frank, um, v- very humbling experience. Um, what would you What would you say? Yeah, I think, yeah, often it's very easy to look at people at the top and think they look like they're doing well. They, they're always doing well. Or, they, or they've had an easier path than me to get there. How do I get there? Can I really get there? Or, you know, it, how realistic is it for me to get a seat at the table? And you ask yourself all, all manner of questions throughout your career. I think what John spoke about in terms of, you know, in, in the early stages, having some overconfidence sometimes and then actually sometimes having the value of that getting beaten out of you is very, is very powerful. And I've, I've, I went through that phase. Um, have you? And- have you have you experienced <laughs> that as well? Oh, yeah. Well, I think in investment banking, uh, it's, it's part of the programming <laughs> for, you, for you to have to learn that very early on. And I think now that I'm uh, in a managerial capacity, what I'm personally struggling with actually is t- turning on that part of my character. When you get fresh new talent when they're on internship or when they're graduates. There's so many more things they need to learn and and you want them to learn and you want to teach them. And it's kind of a fine balance between having that firm hand and providing those sense of boundaries and that structure and, and, and really pushing them to do their best whilst at the same time providing that level of empathy and that wellness broader ecosystem. How do you cope with that? What have you learned about yourself as a leader? What advice do you give to somebody who's maybe not the same as you, maybe too similar to you? I think one thing that I have learned is you can do people a disservice by being too kind or too nice (laughs) in your approach in some cases, you know, actually finding the fine line between giving you appropriate constructive feedback that's going to help you get to the next level, but also making sure that I come with, if I come, if I lead with the right hand on that, I come with the left hand to support you behind as well. One, one thing that I really try to do is give appropriate praise and credit where it's due and in public forum. Cause I think 
a lot of time in industry, as you get better and as you start to do more, the bar gets higher and higher and no one tells you it's getting higher. You just get asked to do more or to go further. And sometimes it can feel like you're failing because you're, you actually never hit the bar, but you don't realize the goalpost is always moving. But actually it's a very positive thing that it's moving because people can see you're able to do more. But sometimes it feels like, oh, I'm doing too much above my level. It's unfair or I, I don't understand why this is being asked of me. And I think what what is important what was important for me in my career when I had those few people that stopped and realized, you know, when I felt overstretched and said, no, you are doing a great job, <laughs> but actually it's because you're doing such a great job. We want you to do this, this, and this as well. Um, because especially in my industry, I'm not sure how, where, how, how it is at capital, for example, but in, in, in banking, wherever I've worked, cause I've worked a number of financial institutions, you realize you're doing well when you don't get feedback on the work. What we're really hearing there is developing that real emotional intelligence in people. And, you know, when you've got young people maybe coming from disadvantaged backgrounds, in fact, young people in general just need to be aware of those skills. But, John, I just want to talk to you a little bit about your proud involvement with business in the community. Obviously, business in the community really believes that business has a responsibility to people, planet, communities, purpose. Um and and this speaks to you personally, doesn't it? This is why you want to be involved. Would you encourage other organisations to get involved? And what do you actually get out of being in this community? So BITC stands for so many things that I value. Um, and it is a, a vehicle, it's an institution that has the support of many of the largest companies in the UK. You know, I chair one of the committees uh, specifically uh, one involved in, in employment and skills. And we are supported by the member companies. Uh, and uh, as a result of that, able to make really quite a material change in terms of how uh, companies think about um, uh, investing in and encouraging young people uh, to embrace what we call our skills builder, the need to develop skills around listening and speaking, problem solving, creativity, etc. But also the work we're doing, uh, and, and this is something I'm particularly passionate about, to help those in long-term unemployment back into the workforce. And we have mobilized a very significant number of people, uh, literally hundreds um, of mentors uh, from a whole variety of different companies across the UK um, who are willing to now engage with these long-term in- employed individuals, help them develop Um, their career story, their CVs, their resumes, uh, and assist them in getting back into the workplace. And the the amazing thing is you can make a difference, whether you're the CEO or whether you're new into an organisation, you can try and affect change in your organisation. Cam, do you feel that? Do you feel that you're making a change within NatWest? Definitely. We are a purpose-led organisation since Alison took over. Um, over a year ago now well she has ensured that the dna of purpose runs through the entire business all of our business departments they don't just have you know a a commercial statement like a business statement what do we exist for we also all have a purpose statement that we're all invested in like as a team helped create and thought about what is what does my function mean what does it do and and how does it feed out into society in the everyday work that i do daily and i think that is something that was really important to me because outside of work you know, everything I've ever wanted to pursue was around social purpose and social impact. One, one of our core values is uh, is being change ready. 
we don't talk about resilience, but we talk about being change ready and that's, you know, understanding how environments, situations, systems change regularly and how we respond to that. So I think, yes, in a, in a simple answer to your question, you know, going around about the houses, I definitely do feel like I'm able to make an impact where I am. And I feel like my voice is always platformed and supported by not just my immediate team and stakeholders, but the business itself is definitely moving in that direction of really walking the talk or being purposeful. So your purpose, your personal purpose, matches the purpose and the values of the organisation that you work for, which really is where the magic happens. I wonder, um, as we draw the podcast to a close for this brilliant edition, I wonder, would either of you like to ask each other a question? Because obviously the lens brings together existing leaders and new emerging leaders from different worlds. Perhaps it's an opportunity to... John, would you like to ask Ham any particular question about anything that he does in his work? I'd come back, if I may, first to this topic of purpose. The question I will ask Ham is, um, as he thinks about purpose as a colleague within his organisation, what adv- you know, if he got to spend time, perhaps you do already, with Alison Rose, what advice would you be giving Alison with regard to perhaps how the purpose journey should evolve within NatWest? I think if I had the opportunity to speak with Alison um, and how we can continue to push the purpose-led journey, I think what, what two, two things I would want to stress. Um, one is how we expand and think about collaboration. Um, I think there's so much more that business can be doing with community and society. Um, business and charitable partnerships is, is a big thing. I think, for example... Um, one of the one of the charities I support turned to us, which is um, supporting people with financial hardship and and helping to encourage financial resilience. Actually, um, so when people experience unexpected financial shock, um, you know, with, within uh, NatWest, we've had a group of employees, large group of employees, whip around and do individual fundraisers. But the conversation is evolving now in our minds, which is what could a long term collaboration look like? I think there's a, a, a broader conversation to be had, not just about how do we go out and touch communities. But actually, how do we plug into ecosystems of change that are already happening? And, and the other part that I would say is that continue to invest in young people. But I'd love to have even more opportunities for people at a, a younger or earlier stage in their career to actually start to think more strategically about where does the business go? Um, I think very often in business in general, you are taught to do your job really well and then you do it really well. And at some point you get handed managerial or business leadership responsibility. And then you're told to think, what do I want to do? What type of leader do I want to be? Um, what What is my connection to community? And I think there's a lot more we can do to socialize those kind of ideas among people at an early stage in their career if they're given the freedom and platform to do so. And I think that part of that can tie into the earlier statement I made around, you know, if there are those opportunities and those more strategic partnerships with community organizations or tribal organizations, people can get involved at an early stage, lend their skills to other things and also build up their broader understanding of what actual social challenges are out there and how they can help serve their end customer in and outside of the workplace. So I'd love to see some more developments along those lines. And more collaboration where, again, that's really uh, where we can do great work and that's what business in the community does, brings people together. Cam, would you like to ask a question of John? There are so many questions I could ask John. <laughs> uh, <laughs> one that is quite topical for me right now Um one, one of the organizations that I work with is supporting you know, uh, prison leavers to reconnect into society and become employed again. John spoke 
very importantly around you know people of long-term unemployed coming back into the workplace this is a very specific subset of that and there are other challenges which they come with but i was just wondering as i continue to go out and speak to various business leaders and try to get them on board of the idea of supporting that rehabilitative journey and seeing who might want to take on trainees or actual employees and think about how do we really really get behind what we mean when we say you know let's give people second chances let's give people opportunity wherever we find them uh, is there any advice you can give to me about yeah what what what, what i should be thinking what, what language i should be speaking and do you have any views either yourself or as capital as to how we can engage with that population and, and, and really support people to be active members of society again you're touching on something that i've actually been personally involved in in the last 12 months in particular we're a contract to, to government here in the UK. It's about 50% of our revenues. Yet on many of the contracts that we perform for government, we are explicitly prevented from hiring prison leavers in the delivery of those scopes of work to government. So uh, I spent some time championing the cause of allowing contractors to government to employ prison leavers in the delivery of that scope and thankfully got a fair amount of movement on that and we are now actively hiring uh, prison leavers into those roles. I think it's incredibly important we give people a, a second chance. God knows how many times I was given a second chance in my career and you know people don't always get it right. People aren't always set, you know, their compass isn't always set appropriately at a young age. That doesn't mean they should be blighted by that for the rest of, of their lives. And therefore, either directly as capita or through the work we're doing at BITC, we are specifically focused on creating opportunity for prison leavers. And I think my encouragement would be to tell success stories to those who have the capacity to employ prison leavers, to demonstrate to them the potential that such people have. Wow. And at Business in the Community, the Ban the Box initiative, I'm told, has now empowered more than one million jobs uh, to become available for those with a conviction. Final question for both of you. Um, we're moving into a new year. Um, so much has happened this past year. Um, what are you committed to doing more of or less of in the coming year, Cam? For myself? I'm committed to doing less of the self-judgment piece and saying I haven't done enough or there was this happened over these last two years. I had so much free time when I was working from home compared to the commute. Why didn't I do this when I take up this extra course? I think so many people have struggled with that. Mm -hmm. And I think as a, as a personal commitment to myself, and I encourage many other people to not be so hard on yourselves as to what you haven't been able to achieve during what is actually a pandemic. We've all been able to go on as normal, which is amazing, <laughs> but actually it, it is not a normal environment. Um, and on the flip side of that coin, I'm committed to uh, even more empathy as far as possible. I try to put myself in other people's shoes and and see where they're coming from to, to, to illustrate it something more topical um, in, in the context of young people in the workplace. Um, you know, I, I work in the city. A lot of young people who got their first job in the city moved into these kind of box apartments, sharing with three or four people in order to be close to the commute to work and then spent 18 months of, of, of that time at home in that box, which was their home, their office, and everything else in between. And, you know, as someone who is more developed in my career, and even more senior people than me, you know, we may have loved some of the elements of working from home and just being able to be in the house. And mm -hmm. actually, people are competing with space, especially from, you know, more, more disadvantaged backgrounds as well, where you're competing 
literally for spatial inequality. There's no who's in the kitchen, who's in the living room, who's working from bed, which is something that hasn't yet been destigmatized enough in, in the broader context of the industry. I think, you know, there are so many different ways in which the pandemic, but also general everyday challenges affect different people. And I think I'm committed to, as far as I can, still meeting people where they are, but asking those questions or having those conversations which allow people to openly express what they're feeling, how they are, and how they can be supported better. I think you get the best out of people just when they feel seen. Really strong resolutions there for less self-judgment and more empathy. John, what about you? I certainly would benefit from doing the same. For me, it's sort of a sense of redoubling my commitment uh, to purpose and all that that entails, an extraordinarily important element of which is around creating more opportunity for young people, the disadvantaged in society, and working for and leading the enterprise I do gives me a fantastic opportunity to have impact uh, a, a, along those lines. And uh, that objective is candidly facilitated by the fact that we're in an incredibly hot job market at the moment. So there's a nice alignment between the sort of social objectives of doing that and, frankly, the need to have more colleagues join the organisation to deliver our growth objectives. So there's a nice alignment um, of, of objectives in terms of social good and, and creating economic uh, benefit as well. A perfect storm. It has been a pleasure, gentlemen, talking to both of you today in this edition of The Lens. Massively powerful and lots of takeaways for everybody tuning in. Thank you so much, John Lewis, CEO of Capita, and Cam Paul Christian uh, from NatWest for joining us for this edition of The Lens. Take care. 